Well, you can tell a lot about a person by their YouTube viewing history. Some of us would be slightly embarrassed at what we enjoy spending our hours on our phones, laying on the couch, watching YouTube videos. But I'm not ashamed, so I'm going to share a few of the ones that I've watched recently and the things that have consumed my free time. College basketball season's coming up. It's the most important part of the year for me, and so just in a few weeks, uh, we'll be able to watch college basketball. So what do I do? I watch highlights from previous year's tournaments to get me motivated and get me excited to see this year's season. A little stranger, I, I've been watching recently a band, a street jazz band in New Orleans that, that they tour, but they also play most of their shows just on the streets, outside of bars in New Orleans. And they have a lot of different instruments. They have a banjo, a guitar, a trombone, a cornet, which I guess is a trumpet, and a sousaphone, which I had no idea what that was, but it's a tuba. I don't know why they just don't call it a tuba. They also have a guy who plays the, the washboard. It's a Dixieland jazz band, and I've watched all of their videos. You'll also see some even stranger videos in my YouTube history, and for some odd reason, I got recommendations uh, for guys who clean cow hooves. Now, I've never been close to a cow, nor do I want to be close to a cow, uh, but it is just something interesting and soothing to watch these guys clean the hooves and trim the hooves of these cows. Maybe terribly ex unexciting or terribly gross, but don't knock it until you've tried it. Watch it, come talk to me next week, and you'll tell me I've watched 100 of these videos too and I can't stop. But as important as a ragtime band or cleaning cow hooves are, the videos that have affected my life the most over the last few weeks, and again, strange, uh, videos of cobblers, shoe cobblers, men and women who take apart shoes and resole them and fix shoes. Again, don't knock it till you've tried it. The one thing that I've found in watching these videos from cobblers is that the shoes that I once thought were just a waste of money, because you can go to a store in Walmart and buy a pair of dress shoes for 25 bucks, uh, but then I see these shoes online that are $800, and I think, what in the world causes something to be that big of a price difference? Until you start to take the shoe apart, and you start to see that the quality of the craftsmanship is why the, the shoe costs so much, that it was handmade by someone who cares about what his craft not a factory line in China. You see the, the materials that are invested into these shoes and these boots. And you see why they're so valuable and why they're expensive. Well, the reason why I started watching these videos is because I was looking for a pair of boots to last me throughout at least a few winters. And I started thinking about the boots that I've had before and every year I'd spend 60 or $70 and get a pair of shoes that would fall apart or get holes in them or first water that hits it, they're ruined. So I wanted something that would last. And I've learned about parts of the shoe that I've never even thought of before. I had no idea what a shank was. I had no idea what a Goodyear welt was. I learned about insoles and outsoles and all these other things that I had no idea mattered. I thought a shoe was a shoe was a shoe. I didn't think that this stuff matters. But after watching these videos, I found that buying something that lasts is always better than having something that falls apart. 
I've spent way too much money over the years buying inferior products when I could have just bought something that was built well, built to last. So I started thinking about my own life as, as I was looking at these, these videos of these cobblers putting together uh, really a work of art, a craftsmanship. And I, I started thinking about my own self. And I said, man, I want things in my life that are built to last. Things that in my life are, are strong, that will survive the elements. I want my marriage to survive and thrive. I spent thousands of dollars on college education, and I, I can't seem to stop going to school, so I, I spent all of this money on education. Why? And you have too, in order to help you to get a better paying job down the road. If there was no guarantee that you would have a job, or if the job field that you wanted would dried up, would you have spent all that money going to college? Probably not. If you knew that your job was going to be outsourced in five years, would you spend $50,000 a year going to college? Probably not. You would switch majors and do something that you knew would last. What about our faith? Is our faith built to last? Now, this may be a, a really strange question in light of what we read and what we see in Genesis 27 and 28. See, we're going to talk about Jacob's ladder, his dream that he saw this ladder that extended into heaven where angels were coming uh, down and going up. You say, well, wait, what does this have to do with things that are built to last? Well, first, what I hope you see this morning is that this was no mere dream. Yes, it was a dream, but it had a point to it. It had a purpose. It's not like the dreams where we wake up and, and we find ourselves in a, in a mansion or we find ourselves being chased by giants. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Those are just random thoughts. This was a dream that God gave to him. So it's no mere dream. It was a sign from God pointing to something bigger, something that will last. Now, I'll tie all of this together, I hope, at the end of this sermon so you'll see how this introduction kind of points to what we're doing, something that lasts. Because Jacob's dream, that ladder, what the ladder points to is what lasts. It is what survives. It is what is steadfast and firmly rooted and grounded. And I hope you see that. Well, let's right now look at this text, beginning in verse 41. Esau right now is a wounded man. He's been fooled out of his birthright. He's been fooled out of his blessing. And he's angry with his brother. He, he wants revenge. I've never been at this point where I've lost all hope, but I've been close. Years ago, I was in a situation where um, a few men that I had put my hope and trust in uh, abandoned me. I was mistreated. And, and within a matter of, of a few minutes of, of understanding what was happening, I, I was out of a job. People stopped talking to me. Accusations that had no basis in fact were, were being spread and tossed around. And at the lowest of the low where I was, I had a professor. I was still taking classes and I had a professor who said, Ryan, it takes five years to get through something like this. And he, he said, on average, it's 20% better every year after year after year. And so it's not that you forget these tragedies. It's not that you forget what hurt you've gone through. But those tragedies get easier to deal with so where they don't consume you. In the months after 
this happened to me, I, uh, what I call spiritual abuse, because that's really what it was. Um, I was angry. Every bit of me wanted revenge. I had terrible thoughts. Now, I didn't have murderous thoughts. I didn't plot the murder of anybody. But my thoughts were still bad. I, I wanted those men to suffer in the same way that I suffered. I wanted them to feel the humiliation that I felt. I wanted them to go home and tell their wives, honey, I don't have a job anymore. That's what I wanted for them. My, my flesh wanted that. Now, if you've been hurt, you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, we have an inherent desire for fairness and for justice. And when we see an injustice happening or something wrong happening, we want to see justice served. When we're hurt, our sense of justice is skewed. I didn't want justice. I wanted revenge. Esau, same thing. He, he was hurt by Jacob. Jacob wasn't innocent in all of this, but killing his brother was not justice. It was revenge. And in Esau's thirst for revenge, he had forgotten that he was the one who had put himself there. He disregarded God, disregarded his own family, causing his parents to become bitter. He was wasteful with the resources that he had. He gave away his entire birthright because he was hungry. All of it that was planned for him, all of the the birthright that he had, the future that he had, he gave it away because he was hungry and his brother had a bowl of stew. Now his impulsivity has brought him to a point where he wanted to murder his brother. We've seen lots of this in Genesis already. Um, Esau's desire is the same desire that Cain had against Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He feels slighted. He feels like he's the black sheep of the family. And so he says, I'm going to make this right by killing my brother. And Esau plans to kill Jacob. Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Some could read this and say, well, wait. Why is this so bad? Today, if a person only thinks about killing someone else but never tries to do it, no punishment necessary, right? I can't, we do have thought crimes or whatever that they're called, but that's only if that thought leads you to commit a crime that actually hurts someone's person or property. But no one goes to jail for hating someone. No one goes to jail for wanting to kill someone, and how do we know that? Because half of us would be put away in prison right now if we did. We've all experienced hate for someone else. I've ridden with some of you in the car. I've seen it. Some guy swerves in front of you, and you wish that you could speak the words and make them disappear, right? Me too. Anger. Bitterness, resentment, these are all things that are in the heart of Esau. Now the seriousness of this comes in the fact that Jesus says that he looks at the heart. He says this in Matthew 5. You have heard it, that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. So all of the people he was speaking to understood that. The Old Testament says you shall not murder. They got that part. Jesus takes it up a notch. 
He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Esau wanted to kill his brother. And because God looks at the heart as well as our actions, judgment is given on both of those. So the thoughts of our heart, whether we act on them or not, they are just as damning as our actions would be. See, God doesn't just look at our actions. He looks at our hearts. He looks at the, the filthiness of our hearts and our desires because that's really what our sin comes from right here. And so when we have wickedness in our hearts, God sees that. We may not, but God does. And we are just as guilty before God for sinning as if we committed the act. So Esau is already guilty of murder because of the desires of his own heart. All of these things that, that, that Esau is feeling right now, many of us have felt the same way where we want revenge. We want, we, we want to get those people back for hurting us. If every thought that we ever had was broadcast for all of our friends and family to see, what would they think of us? Would we be guilty? See, this is the best argument from our own experience that good people do not exist. Because if we can examine our own hearts, we're no different than Esau. We're no different than what Esau experienced in his own heart. That bitterness, that anger, that resentment, that hatred. The Bible says that no one is good. So we see what the Bible says and then we understand our own experience. We see that none of us are good. No, not one. See, everything about us is tainted with sin. There's, there's no way around the fact that we are radically depraved. Now, hear me on this. We're not as bad as we could be. We're not all going and killing each other. We're not as bad as we could be, but every bit of who we are is tainted by sin. There's not one part of who we are as people. I'm not talking about the, the righteousness of Jesus that has been given to believers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who we are as natural people. Everything has been tainted, has been distorted by sin. This is why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to save good people, did he? Jesus came to save bad people. He came to restore us to a right relationship with God. There is nothing in us that could please God. Our hearts without Christ are just like Esau's, but not just darkness, they're dead. This was Esau. His heart was dark. His sin had driven him to a point where he wanted to kill his brother. And Rebecca, being the ever so vigilant and aware mother, hears this again. She's good at eavesdropping, isn't she? She's good at eavesdropping, and Esau's terrible at hiding his own feelings, so that's a powder keg ready to explode. Look at verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. And then in verse 43, Rebekah sends Jacob to her brother Laban. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. 
and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And then Rebecca says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Verse 46 is Rebecca's attempt to make up a story about why she's sending Jacob away. Now the Hebrew statement that she says when she says, I, we translate in English, I loathe my life. It's more than what you hear from a teenager who doesn't get their way and they go, oh, I hate my life right now. No, you're just upset about your situation. You really don't hate your life. Her statement is not that. Her statement is serious to the point where Isaac would have heard it and said, she may be ready to end it right now. This was a a suicidal kind of warning. This gives Isaac no alternative than to go with Rebecca's plan and to send Jacob away. In chapter 28 and verses 1 and 2, Isaac tells Jacob not to marry a Canaanite woman. And instead he says that Jacob must go to Paddan Aram and marry one of Laban's daughters. If you know the story, things start to get a little weird and not so good for Jacob. So Jacob, the, the sneaky one, gets his share of suffering as well. But then something happens here. We've seen Isaac ignore God's words to him by attempting to give Esau the blessing. Now Isaac has accepted what God has said. Look at verses 3 through 5. God Almighty bless you. And he says this to his son. And make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Isaac's blessing was not something that God was waiting for him to do. But as this promise that that was given to Abraham and then given to Isaac is now being transferred, it's giving passed down to Jacob. Verses 6 through 9 show Esau's reaction as this unfolds. As he's done before, he does the exact opposite of what he should have done. He doesn't do what pleases God. He doesn't do what honors his father. Instead, he marries an Ishmaelite woman. Exactly what he was not supposed to do. So Jacob leaves. He's out of harm's way. He's all alone. He's fleeing many miles away to get away from his murderous brother. He didn't have much of a choice. Esau was going to kill him. Running away practically guaranteed that he would be safe, so he did the only rightful thing, and he left. Look what happens beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This is a crazy dream. What God was doing through this dream was to tell Jacob that now he is the heir of the promises that were made to his father and to his grandfather. A point which this applies to us because we're thinking, man, we, we have dreams, but not like this. We're not fathers or, or mothers of a religion. We're not, we're not matriarchs or patriarchs of, of some grand legacy that's going to follow after us. We're just normal people thousands of years after this happened in a culture that is very different from there. So how do we apply this? Well, I want to look at what Jacob did. I want to remind you of this something that I've said week after week after week. God always keeps his promises. Jacob was by no means spotless. He sinned in some bad ways. So did Isaac, so did Abraham. But God's promise did not ever go away. God was faithful even when people were not. See, God didn't say this. God didn't say, well, since you didn't keep your end of the deal, since you didn't do what you were supposed to do, since you didn't behave correctly, I'm reneging on my uh, commitment, I'm pulling back, and I'm not going to honor my word because you didn't honor what you said you would do. God didn't say that. See, I know I've said this before, but I need to hear this. I need to be reminded of this. If, if salvation is a gift from God and there's nothing that we can do to earn it, and God promises that he will always keep his people secure, we cannot fall back into the thinking that our behavior influences our eternal state. See, some of you may have been brought up in a, a church or a culture, and there are many of us who have experienced this where we are always afraid that we're not meeting the standard that God has set. There, I've read articles on Christian haircuts. I have no idea what a Christian haircut is, but I'm guessing it's very short, which I'm good with now. I went to a Christian school, and boys were not allowed to have hair that touched their ears. Those who could grow mustaches were not allowed to grow mustaches. And so for years, I just assumed, I thought as a young believer, I thought that Man, long hair is a sin on men. It's not. I, I always thought that, that and, and there are some places that women can't wear pants, and if I see a woman with jeans, oh, that's sinful. No, it's, I don't see that in Scripture at all. And so there is a, a, a huge number of Christians, and I encounter them, a huge number, that believe that their faith, their security and their salvation is dependent upon their behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God gave me this salvation. I'm saved by grace. Yeah, but I need to make sure I can keep it. That runs contrary to the gospel. Our actions are important because they show that uh, we're true, uh, truly part of God's family. Faith without works is dead. But it's God who keeps us, not our actions, not our behaviors. See, so anyone who falls away from the faith truly was never really part of the faith. If there is no evidence of faith, there is no faith. John says in 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. I, I liken it to this, is that 
you can have a, a buffet laid out on your kitchen table. And you can have the finest meats and cheeses and you can have all these wonderful foods. But if someone just sits there and nibbles on a piece of a carrot the whole time, they're not experiencing the beauty of what you've created. And churches are full of people who've just nibbled. They look like they're having a good time. They look like they're part of this feast, but they've never feasted on the glory of what's sitting at that table. I can tell you, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how many conversations I've had with believers who are worried about their faith. The fact is, is that if someone's worried about their faith, it's probably a good sign. Somebody who's not a believer is not going to be worried about their salvation, their eternal state. So coming back to the text, there ties in here. God's covenant, as we've seen, beginning with Abraham and we've seen it through Isaac and now we're seeing it with Jacob. God's covenant is a one-way covenant. It was impossible for sinful people to fulfill their end of the deal. So God does the work. Every person, beginning with Adam and after Adam's sin, every single person is dead in their sin. Dead people cannot do good works. But God has made us alive in Christ. The promises that we've seen in Genesis that God has been saying over and over and over again is to say this, you can't do it, I can, I have, and I've kept my word to you. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have a license to go do whatever you want. Paul says, are we to go on sinning so that we can receive more grace? By no means. First John 3 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So if our lifestyle is defined by sin, if when people think about us and all they can think about us is not Jesus, it's not the goodness that comes out of us because of the gospel work in our lives, no, it's debauchery, it's adultery, it's lust. John says, if anyone goes on sinning, lifestyle of sin, defined by sin, they are not of Christ. They are of the devil. This dream that Jacob had was to remind Jacob that, yes, he needed to live a godly life. Yes, he needed to please God through all of his actions. Yes, he needed to do things that God has said, but nothing that he could have done will be good enough. So God has given him freedom to say, look, you are a sinner, but I'm giving you grace through your faith. Grace that covers all of those sins. You're never going to get away from this freely until you die. But I'm giving you in the future hope of what Christ would do. I'm giving you the blessings of a freed conscience, of this freedom that you don't have to worry about constantly obeying laws and doing the right thing. Yes, your heart's going to spring and that's going to what you want to do, but that's not what you have to do. It's not required of you to keep your salvation. And knowing this should cause us to do one thing and one thing only, worship. To know that we are so incredibly unworthy of this grace, of this glorious grace that God has given to us, that we are completely unworthy of all of that should make us do one thing, fall to our knees in tears and in worship. 
Because God was so good to us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Jacob does in verses 16 through 19. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city Luz was uh, as at the first. Our church worship structure is, is or, organized in a specific way. Now it may seem to some that all we do is just a matter of preference. That, that, that what we do, we can move things around in the service. It doesn't matter what order we do. It doesn't matter how we do it. But it does. Our order of service, you can call it a liturgy, you can call it order of service. It's the same thing. It means the exact same thing. It is carefully crafted to present the gospel from beginning to the end. And I'll give you an example. Our call to worship is what officially begins our worship service. You say, well, you're doing announcements. No, the announcements actually come before. And it matters. The call to worship is a picture of God calling us to himself. After that, we sing praises, of uh, uh, songs of praise that glorify God and what he is or who he is and what he does. Next, we have a pastoral prayer that often becomes, if you've noticed, uh, a prayer of corporate confession. Where we, we say, God, forgive us for not reading our word enough. Lord, we are repenting of our sin of not sharing the gospel with those around us. Lord, you've given us opportunities and we have failed. And the rightful response is to remember God through his word where he says, no, you are still safe. You are still secure. This is a picture of what we do when we repent of our sin and trust in Christ. That, that God calls us to himself, we hear that call, we respond, and God gives us a new life gives us hope, forgiveness. And then we sing songs here in the worship of, of praise for what God has done uh, for us through the work of the gospel. It's after that that we have baptism, communion, the reading and preaching of the word. This is a picture of what God does for believers after they come to know Christ. He puts them in a local assembly. And then our service ends with a benediction, a charge to go into the mission field and fulfill the great commission. Now, I share this with you. I mean, like, what does this have to do with Genesis 28 and 29? I share this with you because the call to worship should be a spiritual point of engagement for you. It's not that this building is something sacred, but what we are doing here is something bigger than ourselves. Something special, something, I don't want to say mystical, but, but there is a sense of awe that I think as Baptists we don't quite understand very well that other Faith traditions in the Christian faith get maybe better than we do. But something happens when we gather together to sing and to fellowship and to hear the word preached and sung. Something happens in this. Can we worship God in the mountains and the beach? Absolutely. But the gathered assembly coming together, setting aside our preferences and our differences and saying those don't matter right now because we're worshiping God, that is a sacred responsibility and a duty that we have. So when that happens, it's kind of like what Jacob did after he realized what had happened to him. He had a spiritual encounter with God, like we should have every time that we gather. So he took the rock that was his pillow, and he made that a sacred spot. 
what he experienced with God drove him to worship right then and right there. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I'm not sure if Jacob thought that he could do what he said. He, he trusted in God. He trusted that it was the one true God. He, he could worship God. He could create a space that is designed for the worship of God. But what happens when Jacob failed? It's the question I've been asking. What happens when you, on a Sunday morning, just don't feel like singing? What happens to you on a Sunday morning when you're zoned out when whoever is up here preaching? What happens then? Do you leave guilt? Do you, do you leave feeling guilty? That you've somehow um, angered God because you, you fell asleep during the sermon or you, you fell asleep as you were praying at night or, or you didn't do the, the religious duties that you felt like you were called to do? What happens to Jacob when his faith wavers? When he begins to doubt? When he finds himself doing bad things? See, our worship service is designed so that when those doubts come, when those questions come, that you remember the gospel. It's our not-so-subtle way to live our lives in worship together as an explanation of the gospel, as a, a kind of an example of how the gospel works in our lives. So what happens when you or what happens when Jacob fails? Are you reminded of the gospel? Are you brought back to the point that God's called you to himself, that God has saved you, that you have trusted in Christ in repentance and faith, and that he calls you with the purpose to go out into the world and to share the gospel? Does that bring you back to where you ought to be? See, in Jacob's dream, if it was focused on his faithfulness, he'd be lost. And I don't think this is a stretch to say, but the ladder that he saw, that ladder was Christ. When I talk about the gospel, I often say this, if you can imagine a place like the Grand Canyon, there is no physical way that anybody can go from one point of the north rim of the Grand Canyon and cross over to the south rim of the Grand Canyon without climbing down, right? They're, they're, the gap is too big. You can't jump, you, you can't fly over, you can't do anything to get yourself from one end to the other without having some kind of help. And so if you can imagine this, this chasm in the ground and, and, and we're on one side and God is on the other and sin has just separated that. That the goodness of God is unreachable by our own selves. We can't do it. We can't get over. And so if this helps, you can imagine a ladder that Christ lays himself down so that we can cross, that he can serve as a mediator between us and God so that we can actually finally approach the Father as his children. This is what Jesus does for us. The Bethel, the, the house of God that Jacob built is likely not standing anymore. One day this building that we are in right now will not be here. If the Lord doesn't return, this, this building will go down at some point. It will not remain. 
First Baptist Alcoa has been here for 109 years. Who knows how long this congregation will last, and, and hopefully very, very long, but it, what happens if it doesn't? Jacob's tower that he built is probably not standing. But that's not the point. This ladder that Jacob saw in his dream, a ladder with angels going up and down, if it helps to visualize, they're going up and down on Christ. Christ is the ladder. And I say, wait a minute, what about angels and Jesus? I don't understand this. Think about this. What does a ladder do? A ladder, you put the ladder up against the uh, uh, side of your house. It allows you to get up and to get down, right? What did Christ do for us? Christ descended, came down to us. He became us. Why? So that he could lift us up. Jesus is the ladder. Daniel had a vision too. He says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. The glory is that today the ascended son of man mediates the commerce between heaven and earth. As Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ, our son of man, is everywhere at all times, hearing our prayers and mediating the commerce of heaven on our behalf. Think of this. He is at both ends of the ladder as Jehovah on top and as Jesus on bottom. The incarnate son of man is the ascended son of man whose dominion knows no end. Now it's amazing to me that this was part of God's plan from the beginning. It's not an accident. This is not a story about some dude climbing up a ladder. It's not even a story about angels. The story is about the ladder. The ladder is Christ. And it's amazing to me that Jesus does this for his glory and for our blessing. This place of worship that Jacob created is no more. The temple that meant so much to the Jews and, and following their standards is obsolete because Jesus is the temple. This is the faith that is built to last. All of those other things will crumble and fail. You and I, we will all one day not be here. We will all die. We will all be gone. And it's sobering to think about this, but in 100 years, most of us will be forgotten. We will not last. At least not here. So what are we building ourselves on? What are we building our hope on? Are we building it on a, a, a rock that we used as a pillow? Are we building it on a building? Are we building it on ourselves? Are we building it on our family? Or are we building it on the one that will not die? The one that will last. See, all of these things that we do, we have a tendency to do this. We, have, we try our best to create a pathway to heaven on our own. And all that's left is ruin. Jesus Christ is the only thing that lasts. This is the hope for the Christian, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So my challenge this morning to you is this. What is it that you're building your hope on? Are you building it on your circumstances, yourself, your goodness, your worth, your value, 
what you can do, who you are, your name, your reputation? Or are you building your faith on the one that lasts? The one who is the ladder that has reached down to us and that has lifted us up. Would you pray with me?